to Your Bible, a custom designed to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are recording in the midst of quarantine, uh, so we are tinkering with technology. So if it sounds a little different than it has, that's uh, because it is. Uh, we are recording in opposite spaces, keeping our uh, distance, uh, trying to, to do our best. And so, um, But we want to keep this going, and so we are in the midst of week 13 of our reading plan. Uh, and so we are wrapping up the book of Exodus today. Uh, as well as getting very close to the cross by the end of the storyline in Luke. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And so we start off uh, kind of uh, right where we left off, where Moses is uh, making new tablets, uh, going around doing his thing twice on through now. Um, yeah, I think it's cool that, Mo- you know, God, like, just kind of picks up where he left off with caring for Israel. They really were so unfaithful to him and, and with the golden calf and there were consequences for that. But then he's like, all right, you're still my people. I'm still your God. And he even describes himself in this passage. It's the first time we see God describing himself really outside of being the I am. And he calls himself gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Like he describes himself as so full of love and kindness. Yeah, yeah. He, he, even the balance of numbers there, the mercy upon a thousand, and then the visiting of iniquity is only three to four generations. And so um, he, he's definitely uh, tipping the scales to say, look, I, I am a gracious God. Yes, like what you did was bad. And I responded to that. But um, let's let's start up again. Let's keep going where we left off. Uh, pick up your tablets and let's keep going. And so, um, yeah, he's, yeah, he's proving to be gracious. And he is gracious, but it doesn't, his standard of holiness doesn't change. There are still consequences for sin. And so he was inviting Moses and then all of us to know him and his character more, which is merciful and gracious, but also there are consequences for sin and inviting us to understand that those two things aren't contradictory when it comes to God. Right. And so he wants to continue with the covenant. Uh, renewing the covenant of, of going, Hey, this is, this is still between you and me and, and God's people and God. And so he's, he's establishing and clarifying in some ways the covenant again. Um, yeah. I hope you guys had some like ding dings in your mind when you heard covenant, because we've learned so much about God and what it means that he is a covenant keeping God. And this is a clarification of that. He made a covenant to Israel. They disobeyed him, but he's going to hold up, uphold his covenant. Yeah, uh, which is uh, good news constantly for Israel. <laughs> and and the Israelites sometimes uh, have to remind, or not have to, but they do remind God of, of his covenant in the past, saying, like, look, God, like, you said you're going to be here. And and, and they it kind of tends to prove true when they sort of uh, remind God uh, of, of covenants that he's made. And, and God reminds them of the covenants that, that he's made with them too. So uh, it's a pretty big deal for the life of Israel uh, to, to remember the covenant. Yeah, and in this section, God describes himself as jealous. He calls his name jealous. He says the Lord who is whose name is jealous is a jealous God. And I think sometimes that makes us comfortable. And Chris and I were talking about this earlier, that I think sometimes it makes us comfortable because it's not a character trait of God's that is admirable if we possess it. It is something only God can have. And we feel uncomfortable when we can't personally relate to a character trait in a positive way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a word... We're not supposed to do, but God can do and right. should do. And and my my side of that is always, um, well, what do you want God to draw attention to? Um, 
he either draws attention to himself as a jealous guy, like, Hey, the attention should be on me or he draws attention to humanity, draws attention to something else. And, and the, I, I don't know if I want a God that's necessarily all that um, in, in some of those directions versus a, a God that says like, I, I, at the end of the day, I'm the center of the universe. So um, I want your attention. And yeah. if your attention towards other things, it's actually in our best interest for God to be jealous towards his, his own name and fame, as opposed to letting us go off and worship whatever he wants. And he doesn't care about it. Um, he, he desires that he wants uh, uh, worship and, and he's rightfully deserving of it. Um, so, um, for right, it would be an, is why he redeems us. It would be an unkindness of him to not fully desire and require our complete affection because anything less, anything else that we would turn our affection to is unsatisfying and insufficient. Yeah, and destructive. Yeah. 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 Certainly. Um, and so Moses, uh, ends up with a shiny face through all this. Um, yeah. Uh, it seems like whenever mm-hmm. Moses has these meetings with, with, with God is, his face turns shiny and he doesn't even seem to know it. Um, in some ways to me, it becomes like this little bit of stamp of approval. It seems like whenever he comes down the mountain, uh, he comes down with his face uncovered and then covers it as if to, to have this sort of, um, reminder to the Israelites. Hey, like I, I really had this conversation. I wasn't up there doing nothing. Um, God and I really met and, uh, my face is different now every time it does. But, um, when Paul yeah. from it though, yeah, yeah, go. I, I think that, that now that we have the whole Bible, I would say the primary purpose of this passage is to point us to, that's so much alliteration, uh, is to point us to 2 Corinthians 3. And I just want to read part of it because now that you understand this idea of Moses, whose face is shining with the glory of God, having to veil his face, Paul says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, which of course is the commandments on the tablets came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the spirit. And he's talking about the Holy spirit that dwells within us have even more glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to the end, but their minds were hardened for to this day. When they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because though Christ through Christ it has taken it away. So and it goes on to talk more and more about being veiled and unveiled, but it's to point us to the fact that we have even fuller access to the glorious God that we serve than Moses did on the mountain. Yeah, yeah. It, it's um in the New Covenant, this whole veil thing gets totally changed, that we have these unveiled faces, that we um, have this direct access to God, that you know, even Moses I mean, we're like Moses now. Uh in in but we have a uh, a glowing or a, 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 this radiance that doesn't fade um, like Moses's did. And so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely Paul, Paul reflects on this short little story uh, to say something pretty profound. Yeah. And so um, then we get some Sabbath regulations. God seems really interested in reminding his people of the Sabbath, um, mm-hmm. which Sarah, why do you think God is so interested in the Sabbath? Uh, I think one of the things is that it points us back to God as creator. It helps us remember that God rested after the six days of creation. And so the Sabbath is is a reminder to us that God is God and we are not. And I think it also, again, pointing towards the New Testament, we have Hebrews 4, which tells us that we have a Sabbath rest, an eternal Sabbath rest, where we no longer have to work to earn salvation. Um, and so they were doing an act that was symbolic of what we get through Christ, 
and his atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much. Um, I mean, even, even if you're, I mean, they're not that far removed from Egypt. And so if they were slaves, like your mm-hmm. whole value, everything about who you are is contrib- attributed to what you can do. Um, and if you couldn't contribute, you had no value as a slave. And so um, they're coming out of that too. And, and hearing what kind of God this is, what does it look like to serve God? And God's like, you know what I want you to do? I want you to stop. <laughs> and I want you to not work. And, and I want you to take this day and, and set it apart and, and to make it mine and um, to make it distinct. And, and, and so doing, I think it's, yeah, it's sort of a point to create creation where um, – Adam and Eve worked, but rested and, a, and, a, and a point to Jesus where, um, there's sort of a, a nature of the, the, the gospel itself, the, the new covenant that, um, is, is completely not about works, uh, mm-hmm. that there's a resting that we do, um, in Jesus that, um, that this is always pointing to whether it's pointing forward to it or for us in the new Testament, uh, we are pointing back to it. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, a practice that's that's like a constant reminder of the nature of God. Yeah, and the nature yeah. of us. Yeah, and the nature of us. And so um, then they start taking up all their money for the for the tabernacle. But it seems mm-hmm. like again, uh, at least we had instruction about this before. Uh, and so everybody's doing it. Everybody's giving uh, everything they got. Um, again, they're they're bought in. They are a part of this process. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think there's there's two things that stood out to me as I thought about everybody contributing to the temple. And one thing is that there's this cultural mandate we got in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 uh, where we are to work and keep and, and be participants of spreading God's glory on earth. And so this is part of that is contributing to God and his glory going out throughout the earth and building the tabernacle. And the second is that, you know, when we invest in something, we feel ownership in it. And so I wonder if, as these people were tempted to worship other gods, sometimes they did, but they may also think back and be like, wait, all my jewels or scarlet thread or whatever went to this temple. This is the God I worship and I'm invested in it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and the way it's talked about too, it sort of feels like, I think I have sometimes some preconceived notions around, um, the, the Israelites and they, they sort of did things, but they did things sort of begrudgingly, like, well, I we're doing it cause I have to. Um, but this section makes it pretty clear. Like they are, they are gun ho at least here to, to give to, to, they're willing to, it's out of their own desire and heart that they really want to see this tabernacle come, mm-hmm. come to be, come to fruition. And everybody's participating. It goes out of the way to mention that too. Women, men, rich, poor, everybody's part of this. Yeah. I think it's, it's, I'm glad that uh, Moses put as their hearts move them because otherwise we could be like, well, they just did it because they were afraid after what happened with the golden calf, but no, yeah, they are that again compelled by by love or desire to worship Yahweh. Yep. And so they start building uh, all the things. Um, yeah, as Sarah and I were talking to this, I, I didn't have a lot to say about all this. Like we just got all the instructions very specifically, and then we hear about them building it very specifically. Um, so if you're reading through it, you're kind of like, okay, this all sounds super familiar because it should. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's in some ways chiasmic. So it, it's, you're going to read it and be like, I feel like we just heard all these words just like this before because yeah. Um, but the neat part is, is that at the beginning you read, you shall make, and this time you read, he made, or yeah. they made. So they they put action to what they were instructed to do. Yeah. I don't know if you have anything to add to each of the makings of the things, but. Um, I want to add something to right before in, in the construction of the tabernacle. 
Um, you know, Israel was the one who brought the gifts for the tabernacle, and then they were the ones who constructed the tabernacle. But we are so clearly reminded that the source of all these things, the gifts and the skills, were from God. It's so clear in chapter 35 when it keeps saying, uh, filled him with the Spirit of God or filled him with skill to do every sort of work. God is the one who gave them the ability to do this and participate in the work of God. But God was the source. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then at the end of 39, we kind of get a wrap up of it. And they did it. They, they did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, mm-hmm. um, which is the greatest news. Uh, anytime we sort of see that picture where it's like, God said to do this, and then they did it. And it's like a total moment for celebration every single time we read it that way, um, that that they, they follow through, they finished the tabernacle and they did it. Like there was a, a pretty big hiccup right in the middle there. Um, yeah. But they finished what they said they were going to do. Um, yeah, and they repeat it so many times. All the work had been done according to how the Lord had commanded Moses. And I think, think they say it three times that, like, they, yeah, they did it. Yeah, which is awesome. And then we get establishment of Aaron and his sons as priests. Um, if you remember going back to even the Moses story of Moses talking to the burning bush, he eventually is like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Um, and God's like, okay, well, we're going to bring in Aaron, uh, your brother. And um, he's going to also be sort of a representative with you or for you. And so um, the culmination of that story, which on some level feels like a bit of a concession that God gave. I don't know if God, um, uh, uh, barring his sovereignty aside, I don't know if God, uh, if, if, if we would have had a political priest with Moses and Aaron or Moses as political priest, but who knows, but clearly from that story on Aaron was going to play a role. And, um, and here we see the establishment of Aaron and his sons as sort of this unique priesthood. Yeah. And I think verse 15, it says the second half and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. And when we think of priesthood, perpetual priesthood, I immediately go to Hebrews where it talks about priests and how they kept having to have more and more priests to, to provide sacrifices for Israel to be atoned for their sin until we had our very best and final priest in Christ. Yeah. yeah. And, but there's also a way I, I absolutely believe. Yes. In terms of sacrifice and in terms of salvation, um, that, that role of the priest is over. But um, I mean, Peter picks up on, on the language of, of calling us a nation of priests now. Oh yeah. The same language that Exodus has. And so um, in, in some ways priests, Yes, do the atoning work, but also priests are sort of representatives of God. Um, they're mm-hmm. the ones that that inter- intercede and are sort of intermediaries, not just from people to God, but God back to people. And so, um, our role now um, as believers, as as the, the nation of priests of the church, um, is is to intercede for the rest of the people and also to represent God to the people. And so, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's that the whole priesthood idea is, is a pretty big big deal. It's a pretty big idea um, that was carried through the rest of scripture. Well, and at some point, all of Israel is called a priesthood of believers, Yeah, yeah. Right? At the beginning, at, at the mountain, at Sinai. Um, yeah. He says, you will be a nation of priests, not a nation with priests, but a nation of priests. And so um, they just ended up with a priesthood as sort of, and we'll talk about this, I think, in Leviticus, as like, here's here's a symbolic, smaller cir- circle of what I mean by that. Um, and so... Um, we'll see that, but I, I just want to reflect a little bit on the tabernacle because we just spent half of it feels like it feels like half of Exodus talking about this tabernacle building, and then all of Leviticus will talk about like 
how to actually use the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And so we get like over one fifth of the Torah devoted to this very idea. And um, I think as a New Testament person, it's sort of like sometimes you're like, well, we don't have the tabernacle anymore. So do I really care about all these details and and all the specifics and lampstands and stuff like that? And at some level, like we care because there's, there's tie-ins to Jesus to all those things. But I think we also have to notice that like God really cares about how he is worshiped. Um, that he takes his the worship of him very very seriously, and um, he desires worship in particular ways. And and sometimes um, um, we may have ideas on how that are contrary to what God desires from worship. Um, the ideas of like, oh, as long as I'm watching God and I give him like my heart, and as long as it's about my heart and my desire, I'm not sure if that totally aligns with everything I read. That that is very important, and actually. Uh, folks like Isaiah will condemn Israel for not worshiping with heart and action. But um, I, I think I think sometimes reading through this, it's like, wow, God is particular about the way he wants to be worshipped or way he designs worship for his people. And I think sometimes we're a little more laissez-faire around mm-hmm. how we think about that and just be like, well, anything's okay as long as your heart is in a certain way or position. It's like, I, I don't know if God's interested <laughs> as much in that. Like he cares about your heart. I don't want to say he's not interested in that, but he but he cares about how. And as New Testament believers, we do get a, a few specifics of how he desires to be worshipped. But um, yeah, to be, to be sometimes mindful of that. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's it comes back to me to even thinking about why it's so important for us to know and understand the Bible. Uh, there's this famous Jen Wilkin quote, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And how are we to know what proper and adequate worship of God is if we haven't read it in his word yeah. and understood his character or, you know, what it means for God to be a jealous God? Yeah, yeah. And I also want to note that, like, but then today also worship is, is a privilege. Like God could have easily turned over his people or turned over us to, to worship all the silly stuff we could have. But he goes, no, I want you to worship me. Like that's what I created you to do. That's where you are most blessed and most fulfilled in life. Here's how to do it well. And, and, and he wants that. And so it's graciousness that he desires and instructs how to worship him. So um, it's good news. It's like your, your, your spouse telling you he like literally going out of their way, going, he, I, I love that you want to love me here's how i want you to do it and and that's nice of your spouse to actually say that <laughs> otherwise you're kind of guessing being like well here's how i want to love my spouse and it's like arbitrary and it may not be how your spouse wants to be loved and so um god's gracious in that just like a spouse would be gracious to be like well you meant well but if you really want to love me here's how to do that and um and i think we get that mm-hmm. so and then the glory of the lord at the end mm-hmm. I mean, sort of picture of smoke that will always be coming out of the tabernacle until God wants him to move and then he's going to move. But this kind of constant picture of his presence, his symbol yeah. uh, that he is there and with them. Yeah. I, I love the Exodus ends with this, that there's been so much anticipation. I mean, we started so long ago, but the plagues and God calling Moses and then being delivered and water coming out of rocks and, and then we see it end with the glory of God coming down. And again, the reiteration of that covenant that God will be a God who dwells among his people and he will do what needs to be done in order to make that happen. It's yep. cool. It's awesome. And it's a reminder that this book is really about God and not, yeah. and, and Israel's role in bringing glory to God. 
Yeah, it's, it's even really interesting as we go from this Old Testament text right into our New Testament text. It's sort of like uh, the presence of Yahweh is so important. And um, the fact that Yahweh leaves in some of the Old Testament stories is so significant uh, in Ezekiel and others. And so and then the first story we get as we head into Luke is about the destruction of the temple, which is essentially when God left the temple in 70 AD okay. and didn't come back again as far as, well, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, which we'll get to uh, in the book of Acts. But um, yeah, the destruction of this temple, um, that, that, that definitely seems like, um, the foretelling, the specific foretelling of, 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 um, Jesus here to talk about. Um, yeah. And, and so now you guys understand a little bit, the, the temple exists for people to come and, and approach God and for God to dwell among his people and where they would do sacrifices. So the temple being destroyed, which Jesus is talking about here is like unthinkable in so many ways, because how are they going to meet with their God and where, where is their God going to dwell if not in this temple? Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it's pretty significant that this temple is going to be destroyed. Hence why there's even mockery of Jesus sometimes where he's like, I'm going to destroy this temple. And they're like, are you kidding me? That's not going to happen. Um, and so, but Jesus keeps getting into some of this, um, what we call eschatological language, a sort of end timesy, apocalyptic, like destruction kind of uh, language. And so there's a lot of ways to take this. Um, I, I tend to interpret it a little bit more, um, at least here, at least when Jesus talks about it. When Paul gets in Thessalonians talking like this, when John does it with Revelation, I, I think there's other ways that you could talk about it that that definitely apply very specifically um, to the church. But um, I, I think here there's there's so much language, and even the pulling of Daniel that that's really about like he's telling these disciples, look, like things are about to get real bad. Like the destruction of the temple is coming, and things are getting real bad. Like there's distress on earth. There's going to be what feels like wars, and it's coming. And um, and I'm telling you this so that when it comes, like, you know, and all the early church will know that, that, that what I said came true, what, what I said, what I predicted, who I am, and, and the end, the judgment of Israel will come. Um, the age of the Gentiles will, will be established. It's, it's coming. This is what's, what's shifting in all of history is the spread of the gospel from this little people group in Israel to the ends of the earth. And so that age is about to be ushered in. Mm-hmm. And so, what you're going to say something? Uh, no, I think that's okay. a great, a great eschatological interpretation. Of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what it means. Fine. The lesson of the fig tree, which uh, to me, it's just like be prepared. Like um, when when you start seeing the buds on the tree in the springtime, know that summer's coming, and 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 you you should know there's some just some signs to, to get yourself ready. And so, um, as a New Testament believer as sort of like a post 70 AD person. Um, I, I think there's ways that all this does apply in terms of like Jesus's return, like um, that, that we are people who are ready. Like the destruction of the world doesn't surprise us. It doesn't catch us off guard. If there's wars, if there's chaos, all that stuff. And, and all that stuff only means that one day Jesus will return, that, that there will be that moment. Um, but uh, in the ancient world, I think what Jesus is talking about is, is destruction of the temple, which he'll even say, and many uh, will flee. Like you need to flee that day. And in history, the Christians did it. They actually obeyed this. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem involved very uh, minimal deaths of Christians. And so uh, it's a pretty uh, amazing story. Yeah. And when it comes to the generations, there's just, a, there's a lot of, nobody's exactly sure. There's a lot of ideas of what these generations can be. So. Yeah. 
And so, but there's people that want to kill Jesus. Uh, we see that the plot to kill Jesus is still going on. These chief priests and scribes, um, which uh, now that we're in Jerusalem, those chief priests, I mean, they're always up to no good. And historically, they're pretty terrible. Um, they, they almost had like a mafia type feel to them. Uh, they, they killed anybody that sort of uh, crossed them and worked really hard to do that. There were definitely subsets of the priests that were worse than others. Um, but um, it was it was bad. The, the Pharisees were nothing compared to these guys. Like the Pharisees were with Jesus for three years and didn't actually lay a hand on him. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem for like five days and these guys are... Uh, making it happen. And so, um, yeah. And I hope you notice in that those first couple of verses that Luke makes sure to point out that the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. He wants us to see the connection between what's going to happen to Jesus and the Passover. Yeah. And you all should have a better sense of that since we just read about the Passover a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And, uh, these, these, uh, these priests are though, uh, tend to be crowd pleasers. It seems like, so they're not willing to do this because they, they're scared of the crowds, but then Judas comes along and it's like, Hey, uh, I, I'm willing to sell them out. And so, uh, they found someone to be in cahoots with and, and work it out with, with Judas to betray him, uh, for some money, uh, not even, uh, the most exciting thing to betray somebody you just spent three years with, but yeah, um, it's yeah, really it's, tragic when you see the big picture. Yeah. It's pretty Our bad. Money. And then uh, Jesus goes out of his way, uh, or doesn't go out of his way. Luke goes out of his way to tell us about the Passover and uh, to slow down the storyline here a little bit. Um, this this evening, this last night of Jesus's life, um, this connection. John has his own way of telling the Passover week, and it gets a little complicated in timeline. But the other three gospel writers, particularly Luke here too, is, is saying, look, this is a Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples. And Jesus acts like he's been waiting for this. He acts like he's been eager and expect, mm-hmm. expectant to have this meal with them um, because it becomes such a huge – I mean, it's the meal we celebrate every week in, in churches all over the world. So um, – Obviously, Jesus is like, oh, I've been looking forward to this and establishing this thing that, that all my disciples will do from here on out. Um, yeah, and there's got to be a big paradigm shift here for the disciples who have always heard it in the context of telling the Passover story with the Exodus. And so they're trying to make these connections that Jesus is giving them, but they're also probably super confusing when Jesus is like, this is my body broken for you. And you know, this is the cup that's poured out for you, which is the new covenant in my blood. And again, being covenantal people, what's this new covenant? What's he talking about? And and yeah, it's it's a lot for them to take in that they probably didn't fully understand until later on. Yeah, I mean, the, there, there's there's a lot of um, liturgy involved in the Passover meal that there's almost uh, certain lines that they'd expect every time Jesus picked up a cup, every when Jesus picked up the bread, but he doesn't say those. And he goes, he goes, uh, this thing, it's about me, and this thing, it's about me. And so it's such a, a it would th- totally throw them off as a reading this to be like, whoa, wait, that's. What is Jesus doing? Uh, and, and, and he's doing something that's out of, out of the norm. But uh, I think it's also important to note one of the crucial elements that's left out of the mention of the meal. There's no mention of the lamb. Um, mm. There's no mention of the lamb on the table. There's no mention like every Passover meal would have had that. Um, that's what they would have been doing at the temple that whole day. And so, um, but Jesus is it. I think the gospel writers intentionally, I don't know if Jesus didn't put the lamb on the table uh, symbol, symbolically or the gospel writers would go out of their way to, to leave it out as a way to saying like, look, the lamb was there, but he's the one talking. Um, and, and so what a significant shift. Yeah. And so then the disciples are still missing the point. 
<laughs> wanting to find out who's the greatest. <laughs> right after that, and I think they're still in their mindset thinking, okay, well then, Jesus, tomorrow you're going to establish your throne. You're going to you're going to do this the, this new covenant that's coming in, like the the covenant of David. That this whole thing's coming. Uh, you're going to sit on your throne. So who gets to be up there with you? Who gets to be great? And Jesus, is like you, you're not getting it. This is not right. how it works. I didn't come to you to be served, but to serve. Like that is what I'm about as your king. Uh, this is what my kingdom is about. And um, but he also yeah. that there's a reward with it. But yeah, I was I was convicted in reading this. I think it was like the way that Jesus broke it down to be really specific. Like, look at the Gentiles; they have somebody who exercises lordship and someone who's a benefactor. And I don't know why it was that statement that kind of clicked in my mind of realizing how I still function and believing that. Um, that a leader is somebody with a tremendous amount of influence rather than a servant who I may have never even met. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, Jesus, Jesus is definitely challenging the way we operate, the way the Gentiles certainly operated, um, where, yeah, power and position are the way of the world. And Jesus is like, that's just not what my kingdom is about. Like you want to be great, go pour yourself out. Even if you live a very insignificant life in terms of how the world views you, go pour yourself out. That's what makes you great in my kingdom. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a reward in that. Um, I mean, Jesus makes clear at the end, look, I mean, all these disciples who are going to pour themselves out all have position and roles in the future kingdom. Yeah. And Jesus talks about Peter's denial. Um that Satan's trying in some ways to use Peter too, but Peter or Jesus prays for him and protects him in some way. Um, one encouragement, even for us as disciples, that in some ways Jesus is always interceding before the Father mm-hmm. for us too. Um, and uh, that his faith, Peter's faith is going to falter, but it won't fall. Uh, Jesus keeps him and doesn't let him end up down that tragic road. Um, yeah, I think Peter at that point was so confident in, in his own ability. He was so resolute and convinced that he would never betray Jesus. And you can kind of tell that that he knew that he wouldn't do it because he wouldn't do it. And it was a reminder after this experience that like he, he can't hold resolve to be faithful to God. It's only the grace of Jesus that allows us to remain faithful. Yeah, yeah. Paul's or Peter's absolutely brave here, but um, it's only going to take one servant girl to ask him a one question mm-hmm. before it all starts falling apart. So uh, we'll get there uh, starting next week. And so, um, yeah, scripture—it's uh, going to have to be fulfilled. Jesus is telling them, like, look, like um, I've sent you out without stuff before, but things are going to get worse and worse. So t- take some stuff with you, um, including a bag and a sword and stuff like that. And I, I think in this story, I think the disciples are still totally missing the point. I think they're yes. like, okay, we got two swords. Here you go, Jesus. Like, let's, yeah. go. Like, let's go to war. And, and Jesus is phrasing here. Actually, uh, I don't love the phrasing uh, in the ESV, but it's like, stop, <laughs> like shut it down. This is, this is not it. Like, yeah. Stop talking like this is not the way we're going to be. Um, and, and it sort of just ends the conversation at that point. <clears throat> they got it wrong. So, yeah. And then they go off to pray. Uh, a well-known story for many of us, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, the this last um, moment of prayer in Jesus's life. Um, and uh, he talks about a cup, let this cup be taken from me or pass before me. Um, 
which uh, there's a ways that like Psalm 75, I'll just read some of these. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup and the wine is red and is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely it's dregs shall be all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Or Isaiah 51, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his fury. You've drank the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Or Jeremiah 25, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And so there's a symbol of this cup that exists in the Old Testament that was about God's judgment, God's wrath, God's fury. And so Jesus isn't just talking about death. He is talking about the what what is coming for him to, to, to be on that cross and to bear the weight of all of our sin. And so uh, he's standing there looking down that barrel and going, oh, this, that that sounds awful, God. Are, are you sure that this is the way to do it? Um, and I think from what we can tell from God's silence, Peter takes it, or Jesus takes it as, all right, this is your will, so I will do it. Yeah, I think there's a lesson here in prayer for us in general. And first of all, that Jesus told God what he wanted. He expressed his desires in prayer, um, but then eventually, ultimately resolved and submitted to God's will no matter what. Yeah. Um so for us, we can tell God what we want, but at the end of the day, we need to submit to what God wants. Right. And there's such a beautiful parallel of this garden. I mean, we, we've seen another man stand in the garden and battle mm-hmm. the temptation of self versus God's yes. will. And uh, the first one didn't go so well in Adam, uh, but in the second Adam, he simply says, nope your will, not mine. And yeah. uh, from there brings life instead of sin and destruction. Yeah. And so um, it almost feels like from this part on, like it's like watching an eclipse happen. I know there's eclipse in the cross, but just go with me with the analogy. It's like, you're just starting to see the darkness take over the sun and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until mm-hmm. we get to the cross. And so, um, but we see the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, which I think uh, uh, Luke here is just highlighting the like, um, shamefulness of just the whole storyline. Like Judas betrays him with a kiss. Like that is a warm customary um, like greeting. And it's just like, Oh, Judas, you're really this awful and cold. Um, then to cut off the right ear, which means like you probably, Peter probably would have attacked from behind. And then the chief priests are doing this in the evening. Like even Peter, even Jesus is like, I was with you all the time during the day. Why are you doing this now? Right. Uh, to point out the, the shadiness of what's going on here and this arrest and betrayal. Uh, Luke will leave out a few details that other gospel writers do in terms of just how sort of shady the night stuff is. Uh, but um, it, it's pretty bad. Um, this is not upright version of how to even go about any of this. Um, this group of high priests and Judas and all are just the worst. Um, so, yeah. 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 And so Psalm 105, um, we get a retracing of basically the whole book of Exodus. Uh, and so uh, of at least, uh, yeah, uh, their whole release out of Egypt. And so um, just reminding God's people through song of, of what he's done for them. Yeah. It's kind of fun to read through like a summary of it since we just read it all in detail. And what you see is God's constant provision for his people. And so next week, um, what do you want them to look out for? Old Testament. See if you can chart out the different offerings. You're going to read a lot of stuff that seems pretty redundant, but if you kind of pay attention to what and where and whom you'll, you'll kind of discover the differences in these five different offerings. And then if you can, this is kind of hard. It was, it's been hard for me just to see where you can find the gospel. Like how do these different offerings point to Jesus, life, death, resurrection, second coming? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'd recommend if you're, uh, as I recommend probably starting most of these books, like watch the Bible Project on Leviticus. It's super helpful. Um, I think it lays out the book beautifully in such a way you're like, oh, I can get some handles on how this book is laid out and how it makes sense and how it, fl- it doesn't feel like a bunch of random laws or instructions thrown together. It, it has a meticulous way that that book is constructed. Um, and then, uh, at least on the New Testament side, yeah, uh, I would, yeah, I would, I would do what Sarah just said, like connect the dots between these blood sacrifices that we're going to talk a whole lot about and like Jesus and his death and what that's supposed to symbolize uh, related to sin and related to sacrifice and related to offerings of animals and stuff like that. Yeah. And I would say when reading the New Testament, pay attention to the people who are accusing Jesus versus the people who are saying he's innocent kind of figure that out. And then if you can follow some cross references in your Bible, I think we talked about those in the first or second podcast to see what kind of old Testament prophecies, the crucifixion connects to. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, It's awesome. Well, all right. That's it for today. We thank you all and we look forward to next week. Thanks Thanks, guys.